Hello, and welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. I am so glad you're joining us. My name is Kim Menninger, and as a women's leadership coach and a lifelong sufferer of imposter syndrome, this topic is really important to me. I have heard so many imposter syndrome stories from the women around me. The crippling self-doubt, the feelings of being a fraud, the fear of speaking up, the disconnect from others. I've also heard the inspiring ways in which women have managed these feelings, the ways in which they've stood up to self-doubt, sought out support, and come through on the other side. I started this podcast because I want to share these stories with you. Too many of us suffer in silence. We feel alone and ashamed of our feelings, which makes them even more powerful. I wanted to create a space where women could share their experiences and release the burden of what we often carry around as a deep, dark secret. I also wanted a place where everyone could hear from others and recognize, hey, I'm not alone. Imposter syndrome is a real thing, and there are steps that I can take to rise above it. I hope that as you listen, you'll find support and comfort in what you hear. And if you're feeling brave and motivated to do so, I hope you'll someday share your story with us. Welcome, Amma. Thank you so much for being here today. I would love to start just by having you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Amma Marfo. I am a speaker, facilitator, author, and occasional digital marketer. I wear a lot of hats, as many people who work for themselves tend to. Um, based in Boston, I've lived here for about seven and a half years, and my background's in higher education. So before that, I spent close to a decade on college campuses working with students, faculty, and staff um, around areas of leadership, group dynamics, and now I've kind of taken those lessons and that experience into a new venue of helping people figure out how that benefits their work, benefits their leadership as students, all of those things. Excellent. So I'm sure you're no stranger to imposter syndrome, not just personally, but I'm sure you probably see that around too. What does it mean to you when you hear that term, imposter syndrome? Well, I think it can mean a couple different things. So I know for initially for myself and for another of other women that I've worked with and spoken to, it's that feeling of how did I get where I'm supposed to be or how did I get here, even if it is something that you earned and that other people have kind of assessed you as worthy of, qualified for, all of those things, and that sneaking suspicion that people will find out oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, someone is going to find out and all of this is going to fall apart when they do. So I think some of it is not just that feeling that you're not where you're supposed to be, but also kind of encompasses those things that you do to cover what you feel like you might be hiding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then increasingly, as I speak to more uh, black and brown women, recognizing that some of that is less about feeling as though you're qualified, which a lot of them do identify that they are, rightfully so, but also kind of the possibility that other people aren't going to see you as qualified, even though you are, because you might not fit the space that you're in. So I think depending on who's speaking about it, it can mean different things and manifest itself in different ways. That is such an important point. I'm really glad that you raised it here. I think that's a really great perspective to bring to the conversation that I'm trying to have here on this podcast. Can you say a little bit more about what that experience looks like for women who are feeling that sense of doubt that others are seeing them as qualified? 
Sure. I mean, I think about the statistics that keep coming out year after year that among the highest educated populations in the country is Black women. And the fact that we see so few of them in positions of leadership kind of speaks to when evaluations of performance are coming up or what someone who succeeds in an organization, quote unquote, looks like, recognizing that there aren't a whole lot of people that look like them. Um, And that feeling can come from people who kind of say, oh, well, this isn't a fit or it doesn't seem like how we've been doing things and recognizing that a lot of those mindsets and a lot of those norms and traditions ultimately leave you out of spaces that you're qualified to be in, rooms that you do have what it takes to participate in meaningfully. Um, So it's it's a different type of imposter syndrome, but I think it matters too because it's not a matter of us doubting ourselves, it's doubting the capacity of the people around us to put us in those rooms where we can have an impact. Wow. That is, again, that's a really good point. I'm curious, obviously there's no simple fix for this or we'd be doing it already, hopefully, but what are you seeing in terms of women's approach to this? So the challenging part about what you're describing is that when we talk about imposter syndrome from an internal perspective, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit more that we can control, right? Because it's internal to us. And when we're talking about limiting beliefs and mindsets, we can do some work on ourselves and hopefully make a change in our own confidence level and our own experience with self-doubt. When we're talking about this from more of an external perspective, where it's, it's not me, it's, the people around me, what Mm -hmm. options are available to women who find themselves in that situation? It's a profoundly challenging thing because any situation where people who are marginalized for whatever reason, be it women, uh, so based on gender, based on race, based on sexuality, all of those things, there's this odd position that you're put in wherein you're both the victim of whatever challenge is being placed and also increasingly and maybe unfairly being called upon to solve it. Um, So I think occasionally it's about drawing attention to those who do ally with you and say, this is the situation. How can we kind of utilize and collaborate to use that influence to start to make change? Because it can't just come from those who are impacted. It has to come from people who have a little bit more power, have a a little bit more influence that can see the benefit of that dynamic changing. So within organizations, it's really about kind of building those relationships and allying with those people around you who are on the right side of it and having them help move other people over in a way that your voice might not be heard um, with as much gravity, as much influence, that sort of thing. Mm. So that from, from an internal perspective, I think that's among the easier ways to do it. Uh, I think increasingly we're also seeing women go out on their own and build things on behalf of other women. Uh, So I was a film student in college and increasingly over time kind of became aware that there was a very specific type of filmmaker that we discussed. Very few were women, even fewer were women of color, if any at all. Um, So seeing things that um, Black women directors now like Ava DuVernay are doing where they're building production companies and the productions that they're creating are increasingly bringing on women who would have been overlooked otherwise. So being able to build something of your own and kind of creating that spot in the world that you wish it existed for you um, 
that's also an approach that's being taken. And again, we're seeing a large rise in Black female entrepreneurs because of that. It, it's easier in some ways to build your own thing than mm-hmm. to try to change the thing that already exists, which has its demoralizing points, but I think people are doing such incredible things with it. Arlen Hamilton's another one um, with VC funding for uh, marginalized populations and just kind of letting people with good ideas who are being uh, discounted by other VC firms have the money that they need to make change. Mm. Yeah, it's great to hear that that's happening. Like you said, it is a little bit complicated because you don't want to have to do that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and that doesn't change the fact that the system needs to be changed, right? That, and so we don't want to send a message that we're walking away entirely from the system because there are a lot of people who don't have that option and who still deserve a rightful place in the existing system, right? So I think what you're describing is great in terms of creating more visibility and opportunity for people. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, also when you brought up the, the, the point about having conversations with allies, I think that's another really great point as well. If you are in a position where you are part of an established structure and you're experiencing this today, how can you leverage people around you just to even make them aware of something that they may not even know is going on? Because they think that if you haven't experienced it directly, you may have some benign ignorance, right? It's not necessarily that you have malicious intent. It's just that you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. I've had that conversation with a number of people about it not necessarily being deliberate that some of these things are overlooked, but how can you then decide how to bring those things to people's attention while also recognizing that it's a profoundly difficult thing to bring up for people who are getting new knowledge that might challenge what they're very comfortable with, Mm -hmm. and also recognizing that it's not without the possibility of impact for yourself, right? Which is a profoundly difficult thing to have to go about recognizing that you're standing in an organization could be impacted by the types of things you bring to their attention. But I'm also a huge proponent of people building support networks for themselves, including people outside of their organizations. So things like sister circles or support circles, um, mentorship and sponsorship. So having other people that can kind of galvanize you, going back to that original definition of imposter syndrome, the people that can say, no, you do have what it takes to do this and kind of pump you up for having those tough conversations and also knowing who to have them with, like who is likely to respond in a way that is positive and constructive and then can have a positive and constructive conversation with other people. So kind of knowing where those battles can and should be picked and can be done so productively. Do you have any thoughts on how, if someone's listening right now and they're thinking, I'm identifying with what you're saying, and I'm not quite sure who that person is, do you have any thoughts on how they could go about identifying a potential resource internally to start that conversation with? I think for something like that, it can start with some of the relationships that you have with coworkers. And I think even if you have a coworker that you kind of spend time with occasionally will vent to those sorts of things, start having those conversations and saying, I'm starting to feel this way. Have you noticed this? Um, If they haven't noticed it, being able to say, well, for example, this is the experience that I'm having. 
Um, and it can start with more kind of like social conversations and things that we're accustomed to having. And then as people kind of start to see your perspective and impact how you work, especially if your work is valued, um, recognizing that having what you need to be successful is also another piece of that conversation. So yeah, kind of picking where natural relationships stand out. Um, mm. And again, I recognize that there are people that work in organizations where they feel profoundly isolated. And that's where I feel like going outside um, might also be helpful. So it's like, you're not crazy and there might not be anybody where you are, but other people do feel this way. Yeah, that's a really great point too, is getting that external support system in place for your own confidence level, like you said, to remind you that, yeah, you absolutely have a right to be where you are and also to provide you with additional support that you may not be getting internally or even just different ways of thinking about how to approach internal situations. Because sometimes when you're on the inside, you're just so close to it that you don't see it from a distance in the way that others can. That's very true. One of the areas that I speak about a great deal is creativity. And a big part of creativity for me is being able to push out of your familiar surroundings or places where you're typically going for information to see how other organizations, other industries, other fields are addressing the problems that you're seeing. So I think a big part of that is talking to people who maybe have no idea the dynamic of where you work, no idea the nature of the work that you do, and saying, this is the situation. What does this look like where you are? And mm -hmm. sometimes some new types of solutions that we don't think about because we're so entrenched in our environments can come to mind from being open in that sort of way. Yeah, th I, that's a great idea because even if things are going well or you think you have a supportive environment, you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know that there aren't other things going on in other organizations that would be great to, to bring back. So everybody can benefit from that. And you can also be of service to others by sharing what you're doing and what's working well for you. Absolutely. Especially if something is going well, um, especially if demonstrable change has been possible for your organization, even if those circumstances are a little bit different, of course, you're not going to be able to replicate things from one organization to another, but it starts to plant seeds to say, this particular conversation might not work with this um, analogous person at my organization, but maybe their assistant could help, or maybe um, somebody in my office who worked in one department before works somewhere else now could start to let me know how it would make the most sense to approach those people. Figuring out where that information can come from um, is a good way to start thinking about it. So we're not going to be able to replicate one program across a number of different places, nor should we, but it might give clues about what that type of change could look like at your organization and how to get the ball rolling. Absolutely. Now, Tell us, if you're comfortable with this, a little bit about your own personal journey. Has imposter syndrome been a challenge for you at all? It definitely has. Um, I think about it in a lot of ways when I'm speaking to new audiences. So because so much of my network is based in higher education, when I first started speaking and facilitating, a lot of those talks were happening on campuses with students, which I was very comfortable with because that was who I'd been working with. But as I started to find corporate organizations and nonprofits who wanted me to speak to, for lack of a better term, actual adults, that was a little bit different for me and starting to think about, will the information that I'm sharing resonate? Are they going to want to listen to it from somebody who, being fully aware of how I look, might look younger or be younger than a lot of the people in those rooms? So there was definitely a sense of imposter syndrome when I started out there. And what did you find helpful? Because obviously it didn't stop you. You 
continued to pursue that path and you're doing really well today, what, what were the strategies that you used or the mindset shifts that you had to make in order to push through some of that? So I am very much a learner. I pay a lot of, te- of a lot of attention to like logic and input and a lot of information. And it ultimately came back to something that I had learned when I was on campuses, which is the number of students that we touch through leadership programs is relatively small compared to the number of students that we would hit on campuses, which means for a lot of the people in those rooms, even if that opportunity existed on their campus, most of them had never heard what I was talking about. So it's new information to them. I was always worried, oh, well, it's going to be too elementary for them or they won't understand it. But recognizing for how many people it was actually brand new, they'd never thought about it before. That's where I thrive, being able to introduce people to concepts that they can then incorporate into their lives. And realizing that was just statistically more likely than I originally thought it was. It's kind of like a cold and calculated way of thinking about it, but the numbers really helped. (laughs) I I think that's great. And it also sounds like you are really tuning into what are the strengths that you bring and that your message brings to these audiences, as opposed to having an imbalanced focus on the negative, the anxiety, the worries about how you're going to fail. Right. And I also think too, seeing a lot of speakers over my time, both people that I had seen do training, people that I work with that do training, Um, recognizing that my style is a little bit different. Um, Just being somebody that likes to have fun with our presentations, likes to make them interactive. Um, I do have a background in comedy, so I like to make it a little bit more fun. If nothing else, it'll be something that people haven't seen before. Um, And then again, going back to the intersections of my identity, recognizing that while some people might not respond to the message because it comes from me, there are probably people in that room that need to hear it from somebody that looks like me. And that could be intimidating, but I kind of chose to instead take that on as a charge. Like, who needs to hear the message the way that I deliver it? And how can I get into rooms where I get to share that? I love that because imagine that you diluted yourself and your message to try to please everyone, so to speak. Right then you would have a far less compelling message and approach and you would miss that opportunity to connect with the people who really want to hear your story from you. And I think that's a challenge for so many of us, particularly as women, is that we're so afraid of what will happen if we don't connect with a certain percentage of our audience that we miss out on all of the great opportunity that exists to connect with the people who truly do want to hear from us. Absolutely. And it takes a lot of practice. Like I think about the number of times where something will be advertised really heavily and I'll arrive at a site and there are maybe six or seven people in a room. And I've definitely been on the side of the event organizers who are super embarrassed and they're not really sure what to do. And I've really gotten to the point of where I need two people. If one person shows up to this event, you can send them home. If two people show up, we can still have a great conversation. And I found some of the most impactful conversations that I've had, um, where people have followed up and said, this really helped and here's what I did as a result of it, have happened when there were four people at an event. So I love being able to pull from the energy of really packed rooms, but I've also found a way that I can be really effective with small numbers too. I love that too. And I would agree with you having been in similar situations myself. And I think when you are the organizer, there's always this 
sense of shame that you didn't bring out these large crowds, but as the person who's doing the presentation, the workshop, what have you, to, it's possible to create connection with all different sizes of groups. And the dynamic really depends on the engagement of the people who are there and our willingness to be really open and vulnerable with them. So it's not the audience size that matters. I think that's such a great point. Yeah. And having a background in events, it it's a hard fought skill, but just kind of being able to recognize that numbers aren't the only thing that mean that you're doing the right thing. Like it could be four people in a room, but you can tell one person's with you, like that attentive head nod that we kind of always chase after. <laughs> um, and I was like, even if one person's doing it, like that person's going to have a materially different experience from having talked to me and kind of coming to appreciate that has made those moments where it doesn't necessarily feel like you've done the right thing. Like they said what I was qualified for. They listed my qualifications and only six people showed up. Am I not supposed to be doing this? And I was like, well, no, because that one or two people, I can tell that they needed to hear this and that can count also. I also think that it takes a certain level of confidence to see it that way because if our focus is on being popular, if our focus is on being liked, right? And then we measure our value in terms of the number of people who show up, that can have a much different effect on how we see ourselves and how we then in turn show up for the people who do make it. Yeah. So it takes a certain amount of self-trust and a belief in our value to be able to show up fully for whoever's in the room. It does. And it's not easy. And I also find that, and I'll tell anybody that's ever working on their own, but also really anybody that has a message that they're unsure of is finding the people that believe in what you have to offer and can reliably believe on you, in you even when you don't. Um, that's been really powerful. Like all the memes that pop up about like every strong or powerful woman has a text thread of women hyping her up. I have multiple. <laughs> um, one's family, one's friends, one's a mastermind group. But having those spaces where you can kind of plop down on the couch and just text people like this one was hard. And then people would say, that doesn't mean that it's not for you. It doesn't mean that you're not good at it. It just means that today was hard, but you have what it takes to keep going. Um, Having those people that kind of believe in you, even when you don't, I think that's tremendously important. I also think related to that is the first step, which is being willing to say this is hard right? To be being willing to be vulnerable with the people who can support you. Because one of the things that I've learned about imposter syndrome and just this general conversation that we're having today is that so many of us suffer in silence. And there's this real fear of saying out loud the kinds of things that we're talking about. And so in order to get the kind of support that you need, you have to be able to share very vulnerably. Yeah, that's really true. I was actually just having this conversation with someone a couple days ago. I was working on something. I honestly don't even remember what. It was a writing project, and I was just having a hard time cracking the point I wanted to make and how I wanted to express it. And in a quieter time on Twitter, we have since left that time far behind us, um, I tweeted something to the effect of like, this particular writing project is hard. And that went out to a lot of people, including some, like, I mean, with like anything on social media, if it's unlocked, anyone can get to it. 
So some random person, a male who was not asked, then was like, oh, you should try writing a book. I've written three books. I'm aware that writing a book is hard, but that doesn't mean the thing that I'm doing is not also hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, just kind of recognizing that maybe that wasn't the space to express that sentiment because it kind of t- took me back when someone then responded and then there was the whole other issue of, well, how do I then respond to this person and all this other agitation that I didn't really need. So mm. as I talk to people who are a little bit worried about like, well, what happens if I put something out there and then I get responses that I don't want or wasn't expecting? and The way that I explain it to people is thinking about it in terms of a bullseye, or rather a target with a bullseye at the center and then a couple rings outward. So starting at the central point with yourself, figuring out what you're good at, what you like to do, and where those things align. And then the next circle outward is those people that you're really close to that want to support you and kind of recognize that you are in fact good at these things and where you find your likes and your talents aligning makes sense. And then moving outward another ring is maybe larger communities. So that can be networking groups within your area, online communities if you find yourself engaging in those, all people who understand the thing that you like and can recognize your talent in it. And then the furthest circle out is the larger public and being able to navigate starting something you're unsure of with yourself and then going further and further out with people who have have the capacity and desire to support you can ultimately get you to a space. So when you're out in that larger public, it feels a little bit less risky. I love that. I think that's such a great visual and a really important message too, especially for people who may be not as comfortable speaking out just yet to find an inner circle, you know, so a group that, they have more trust with, that they are much more familiar with to start there and then start to work their way out accordingly, you know, depending on what they're looking for, what kinds of responses they may be getting. And I think especially for women who just statistically looking at the numbers and looking at studies that have been done, get more pushback when they put ideas out in the open. I think having that fortification of people behind you before you go out into those spaces can help buffer you against some of the really difficult things you'll inevitably encounter when you decide to put your ideas out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I am so grateful to you for this conversation. I was talking with somebody earlier and I said, one of my fears when I thought about doing this podcast was that if I interview people about this concept of imposter syndrome, eventually all of these conversations are going to start sounding alike and it's going to feel a little bit redundant and boring. And that has absolutely not proven to be the case. Every single one of these conversations has a little bit different, has been a little bit different. And The conversation that you and I are having today is so powerful and one that I don't think would have been possible with some of the other guests that I have had. So I am so grateful to you for bringing your perspective to this show. And I, you know, before we wrap up, just want to ask you, is there anything else that you think is important to talk about in this conversation that we're having right now? I think being able to create space for yourself to practice the things that you're unsure of. And I think that's a hugely important thing wherein I talk to so many people who are thinking about speaking or thinking about writing and they're like, I'm not really sure what I would put out or I don't really know where my value lies like in the marketplace. That's okay. 
for the most part, we have the opportunity to take our time and practice things. Um, practice things again with that target metaphor, starting at the beginning until you feel comfortable and then kind of gradually moving it out into the world. Um, there's so many people who put things out really early and feel like they're talking about their successes and their, um, their achievements that it feels like we all should be doing those things. And I think being really open about things that you're like, I need a little bit more practice before I put this out there or I don't want to monetize this thing that I really just enjoy doing and want to keep it as a fun thing. Or maybe there's something you think you quote unquote should be doing, but actually don't like doing, then don't. I think it's a far more individualized pursuit trying to figure out these things that we love and how to share them with other people. And doing it your way is totally okay. Mm. I love that. I, I, that's such a such an important message too for people who are feeling so much pressure to do things because of the way other people are doing things or because of the the messages that they've been given from any number of external parties, parents, peers. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. so many there's so many external voices that we're all listening to. And at the end of the day, there is no one size fits all, right? We have to really be mindful of who we are and what works best for us. Yeah, we have so much more access to so many more voices than ever before. Don't let that rush you. Go at your own pace. It'll get Mm -hmm. done when it needs to get done. What motivated you to want to tell your story today? What are you hoping that people who are listening today will take away from it? Hmm. That's a good question. I think that the more people that I talk to, the more people that I spend time with, the more I realize that we're all feeling a little bit lost. Everybody kind of feels like there's something at any given point that they're not doing that they should be doing, or they should be better at the thing that they enjoy, or they should be having a bigger impact on the world than they think. And I think all of us can really do at any given point, is the best that we can, even if that is not perfect. Statistically, it's probably not perfect, but being able to do it and try it out anyway. And you never really know who will see it. You never really know who will need it right at that moment that you're putting it out there. That never fails to surprise me, the number of times that I'll fire something off, not without thought, but without too much foresight, and someone will then get back to me and say, I needed to hear that today. Or maybe a week later when they deliver on something that they didn't think they could deliver on, it turns out that whatever I had to say hit at just the right moment. And we can do that for each other um, probably with more regularity than we think. So it can't hurt, but it could potentially help. Yeah, you're, you're so right about that. I think about that a lot too, that how often are we holding back in ways that don't just hurt us, but deprive other people of really great insights, ideas, messaging that could really be beneficial even to just one other person, right? Like we talked about earlier, it's, we're so self what's the right word? I don't want to say self-absorbed because that obviously has a negative connotation to it, but we think so self-centrically about these kinds of things when in actuality, these steps that we're taking have the potential to really make a meaningful impact on others as well. So like you said, pace yourself, but 
know where your value lies and be willing to share it. I think especially if you're willing to help and especially if the efforts that you're putting forward are going to create a net good, like speaking truthfully, women just in general, we're a little bit beat up right now. We're a little bit tired. So if what you're bringing to the table has the potential to lift up even one person, do it. We need it and you might need it too. It might feel a little bit better for having done it. I think that's such a great place to stop. Again, Ama, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time today. My pleasure. So happy to do it. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share it with other women who can benefit from this conversation. Before we go, I want to share some additional resources with you. If you struggle with this, with imposter syndrome and you want to manage it more effectively, I invite you to join my free imposter syndrome online challenge. Every day for seven days, you'll get an email with self-reflection questions and exercises to help you better understand your own experience with imposter syndrome and how to navigate it more effectively. To join the free challenge, visit executivecareersuccess.com slash imposter dash syndrome dash challenge. When you sign up, you'll immediately receive your first message. Also, if you're interested in joining a community of women who engage in candid conversations that generally aren't happening elsewhere, I invite you to join my leading women discussion group. On the first and third Thursday of every month at 12 p.m. Eastern, we meet virtually over Zoom to talk about questions or challenges related to career management, leadership development, and any other relevant topics such as imposter syndrome and confidence. It's always a great discussion with a great group of women. If you want to check it out, you're welcome to be my guest on a future call. Just reach out to me at kim at executivecareersuccess.com and I will share the call details with you. And if you want to join my newsletter to receive tips, insights, and updates, text leading women, all one word, to 66866. Finally, consider telling us your story. Contact me to learn more about how you can be a guest on the Imposter Syndrome Files. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.